I wonder how many of you made a New Year's resolution. Any of you? One or two? One or two hands going up? Well, I wonder if those of you that maybe didn't put your hands up, but maybe did make one, but just don't want to show off in church, were thinking about inviting more people, inviting friends or family or neighbours in the way that Simon challenged us last week. How many of us have taken that challenge that he gave us seriously on board? How many of us listen and respond to the sermons that are preached? How many of us want to play the part of the star leading people to discover Christ and worship him above the other things in lives? There are people whom we know and who will know us but do we twinkle brightly enough for them to choose to follow? Or maybe we twinkle a little bit and then the distracting lights of the city lead them off in a new direction. And do we then twinkle brightly again pulling people back to the rightful journey? Or do we just let them go off at that stage? Do they see us as faithfully journeying and faithfully worshipping? It might help us to think about the Magi and their worship. And let that be a bit of a challenge to us about our worship, where we come from, what we do, and then let that worship encourage others. We don't really know that much about the Magi. We don't really know where they came from. We don't really know how many they were in number. According to Matthew, that we've just heard, they brought three different valuable gifts, each symbolic of something that the Magi were thinking, something of the worship they want to give, who they understand Jesus to be. But before we get on to the gifts... Let's stop for a moment and see what happens when they first enter the house. The NIV tells us that they bowed down. Now, that word 
bow, you know, we might think of it as a simple nod, or it might be some great elaborate performance type bow, maybe somebody in a pantomime at the end receiving their applause, bows almost at right angles. I can't do that. Starts hurting up the back of my legs once I get there. It's like, ugh. But it's not that sort of bow at all, is it? And in fact, that NIV word lets us down a little bit. Because a better translation is, is, is falling. They fell down and worshipped. They hadn't travelled all that way to simply nod or to bend at the waist. They fell Unworshipped, and they're on their knees before Jesus. And that's a thing that uh, we might struggle with. You know, we might physically struggle with getting down on our knees, you know, maybe as we've got older, you know. I can usually get on my knees, you know, maybe I'm picking up something, maybe some toys that have been left on the floor. I go to then stand up again. The getting down was easy. The getting up's a different matter. Um, but, you know, we, we might struggle with it that way. We're not used to praying maybe so much on our knees. It's not in our tradition, in our nonconformist ways. It wasn't in the culture of Judaism. And it wasn't in the culture of the occupying Romans either in the first century. In fact, it was a kind of disgraceful thing to do. But it is something that the Magi did. They fall before him. And that's the level of homage that they are bringing as they bring their gifts. They are ready to lower themselves as low as they could be. And in fact, it is what the king himself has done for us. We sang in meekness and majesty of bow down and worship, but we also remember how he stooped down and washed his followers' feet. Again, something that of the culture was an unbelievable thing to do. So, uh, the Magi are prostrate. They're giving every glory, every honour. And they do that with the gifts too. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Firstly, gold that precious metal that a number of us will be wearing in some way or another as we meet. It's rarity, it's glowing beauty. 
has made it valuable for thousands of years. And its presence is uh, indicating uh, richness, it is, is noted in the description of the lands around Eden in Genesis 2. Back in that description of creation, how the rivers flow out, the presence of gold is noted. It was worth stealing from the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. And it's used to make an idol of a calf, but then used to honor the Lord in the ornamentation of the Ark of the Covenant, in the altar, and in the clothing of the priests. Gold is beautiful, and it is valuable. However, in the, in the first century, gold was not just worth money. It was, in its own right, used as currency. And so in offering a gift of gold, the Magi are declaring an earthly right of the recipient to be given money. Perhaps you or someone in your family received a gift of money at Christmas. Maybe not money directly, maybe it was a cheque. Maybe it was a gift card. But in the first century, giving money to someone that was not owed a payment or owed interest on a loan, not owed wages, giving money would be a most unusual thing. A most unusual thing. It's still fairly unusual. People don't generally come along and just give you some money. But here we see a gift given. Gifts in general are unusual. Normally in the Old Testament, it's to the glory of God. Or so that the recipient will give favor to the giver which means it's not truly a gift in the first place. They expect something in return for the gift that has been issued. In Genesis 24, when we first see a gift, the, the, the gift is like a, a dowry given to Rebecca's family. Later on, we see... Uh, Jacob is hoping to make amends with Esau. He hopes his brother doesn't kill him. And he does that by sending forth gifts in advance of his arrival. In the book of Esther, gifts are given firstly from an extravagant king who simply shows off giving gifts to folk. He shows his kingship not by seeing that everybody has clean water and good food and education, but by simply giving presents away. Look at me, I'm the king. But then later we see the Jewish people giving gifts as they care for the poor among them, seeing that they are fed 
and looked after, and thereby honouring God. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about here at the start of the New? Let's remember from the Nativity account in Luke the presence of Joseph, Mary, and the infant Jesus in Bethlehem was about there being a census. The purpose of which would have been to empower the government in its ability to raise tax. The Magi are recognizing the earthly right of Jesus to receive revenue. They are seeing him as the rightful king, a a worthy ruler to receive payment. Now, unlike the Romans, Jesus had not demanded a payment. But the Magi see him as a king and they're moved to honour him this way, to bring a gift of gold. To bring him something of their riches. Do we worship that way? Are the riches that we bring uh, a meagre token? Or are they truly of our riches? Do we see him as our king? And think of what commands the king might give us such that our earthly life is lived in a different way? Do we consider his kingdom to be more important than our nationality? And if we don't see him as our king, do we actually worship him at all? The second gift is one that is more directly related to worship, yet not an element we tend to use in our praise of God here. A frankincense, again, a sign of richness. And its name has that sense within it of purity. The frank bit, frank incense, that frank bit is about its purity, its whiteness, by its origin, its precious nature. And derived from sap, tapped from the Boswellia tree, it's long been related to honouring God. And like the gold, incense might be given to an earthly king as a means of seeking favour. When the Queen of Sheba arrives uh, to see Solomon in one king. She, she takes with her um, spices. And we might think, oh, spices, that's for food, isn't it? But Isaiah 60 suggests otherwise when it prophesies the glory of Zion. All from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense, which would seem to be a reflection back in time to David's son Solomon receiving from the queen 
of Sheba, but also forward to David's son, the son of God, receiving the riches. Now, of course, with frankincense and other incense, there's only two things you can do with it. You can either trade it and make money, or you can burn it. That's what it's for. In Psalm 141, David sings, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of our hands be like the evening sacrifice. I think we know a song about that, don't we? But we're not singing it this morning. In the tabernacle and later in the temple, incense would be burnt. And it would bring a fragrance that would be smelt by those in its presence. But it would also be seen to be rising. And the thought was, because it was going vertically upwards, that it was ascending to God. It was expensive to buy. It required effort to produce and once used it's beyond future use you can't bottle it again and reuse it that's it it's burning as a sacrificial way of saying that God is worthy worthy of the time worthy of the effort that it took to make that frankincense that it took to bring it and burn it. We're not in the habit of burning incense. But do we recognize Jesus in his divine nature as being worthy of effort, worthy of presence, worthy of gifts that we don't necessarily receive back? Do we give of ourselves in a way that is sacrificial? The third of the gifts that we hear of the Magi bringing, we can take in two different ways. Habitually, we journey on the path of Mark 15 and of John 19, where they mention Mar. We remember the cross and the tomb. We remember the, the Mar that is mixed with wine that is offered to the Lord as he goes to the cross. We remember Nicodemus bringing to Joseph of Arimathea uh, the tomb the, a quantity of mar used for embalming. We, we've sung of this use of mar in our hymns this morning. We remember it also in We Three Kings, don't we? breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, 
bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. And so our thoughts of the mar tend to be our worship of the one who dies in our place. Taking the sin of the world on his shoulders, the king does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But that was not necessarily how the Magi intended that gift of Marsh to be used. It's right to acknowledge that embalming was a, a use of Marsh, that death use of Marsh. But if we are reading through the Old Testament, that's not normally how Marsh appears in our Bible. Mar is not necessarily issued with death, but the joy of life in all its fullness. Again, turning to Esther, we see oil of Mar as part of the young woman's beauty treatment before she first attends the king. She had to have six months of oil of Mar and six months of other perfume in preparation. In Proverbs 7, the bed which is fragranced with mar and aloes and cinnamon is not a deathbed. It is the scent of delight. It is aphrodisiac. I'll lead you, uh, I'll leave you to yourself to to, to read the bits in Song of Songs where it refers to how mar is used and where it may appear. It's a fragrance of joy and of love. It's a scent of delight. And we must have that in our mind as well as that sense of death. And so my question on this gift is um, not so much that, that right question, do we recognize as we come to worship that Jesus has done something for us that saves us from our sin? Not that question. It's the question of do we come with that Old Testament vision of Mar? Do we come with joyfulness and delight to our praising of God? Do we approach our worship as if we're going out on a date, desiring the one we are meeting with, having an expectation that they want to see us as much as we want to see them. Wanting to listen to their words and longing that they will hear our words. 
ready to share hopes and dreams of a future together. Seeking to move forward together as one. That's the concept of mar and relationship. Is that how you come to worship? With the delight of being in God's presence? If we don't approach Jesus recognizing him as the earthly king, giving of our riches to him, the divine one, longing to spend time with him, then what sort of worship and what sort of invitation are we likely to extend to others? If we're going to be the star showing the way, then we have to know where we're heading. And it has to be a place that we want to be heading. It has to be a place that we and others want to be. A place where the king rules with love and joy and mercy.